0: Welcome to this special episode of the Southwest Climate Podcast. My name is Gigi Owen, and I've taken over this episode to bring you three special guests. They were all part of the Clemas Environment and Society Fellowship Program in 2022. And so a lot of the science that Clemas researchers do is done collaboratively with and for our community partners. So that the science that we do is useful to decision making, policy development, and planning efforts. So the fellowship program offers University of Arizona graduate students the opportunity to do collaborative research to address environmental and societal problems. So our fellows are here today to share more about the interesting work they have done in and with community partners around the world. Uh, So without further ado, let's meet our guests. First up, we have Julia Davies, or should I say Dr. Julia Davies? <laughs> uh, she's a recent PhD graduate from the School of Geography, Development, and the Environment at the University of Arizona. Her doctoral research focused on how low income urban households in Zambia maintain food security amid persistent social and environmental challenges. During her fellowship, she worked with government agencies and members of the public in Zambia to stimulate dialogue about food security issues that could help push for policy change. So, Julia, welcome. Thanks, tell, us, tell us a little bit more about this work and what brought you to it.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's good to be here. Um, I was saying just before we started that it's you know it's, it feels like a while ago now that my PhD work was done, and uh, it's nice to be called doctor. Um, but, yeah... As you mentioned already, my my PhD work was around urban food systems and urban food security in Zambia and Southern Africa more generally. Um, And that started in 2019 when I came to the University of Arizona from South Africa, where I'm from. Before I came here, I was working more in the climate change adaptation space. So food security and food systems was a new uh, kind of domain for me, but it's been a really interesting journey. And it all started in 2019 when I went to Zambia for three months and spent some time in the field um, where I interviewed various uh, government representatives like, um, you know, people in the urban planning department, um, council people, basically people who are responsible for, for policy and planning in secondary urban spaces um, in Zambia. Um, I also contributed or participated in an extensive household survey where, uh, together with um, some of my colleagues, we went around from house to house um, with the help of several enumerators and we managed to get around 3,000 household surveys that um, essentially uh, helped us to understand what the food security status of these households is and what some of the challenges are that households face when it comes to, to accessing food. We also went to uh, open-air markets, which are traditional marketplaces in in African cities and rural areas as well, but of course my research is focused in cities, um, to understand what types of food are flowing through these markets, um, who's buying food at these markets, what the prices are, um, and what kinds of shocks and and challenges these, uh, these market vendors and customers experience. Um, so all of this was aimed at understanding the food system. And if you're not familiar with what a food system is, it's essentially everything from food production through to food consumption and waste management. And I was mostly focused on kind of the middle aspect of that, which is the food retail space in cities. Some of my research also looked at urban agriculture, which is uh, growing food in, in cities, and in, for example, in backyards or on roadsides and, you know, any of these spaces. So, so yeah, trying to understand these food systems and, yeah, what people are eating, where they're buying their food and what challenges they're facing and then overarching all of that, how are these food systems governed?
0: Super interesting. And that's so much work. 3,000 surveys um, is incredible. Um, what... So what do you... Where is it at right now, and and what are some of the kind of outputs that you're you're hoping to produce from this?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, I finished my PhD in January. That's when I defended. So most of the work is done, Um, but my first kind of two big outputs from that were uh, two papers. The first was on the barriers to urban agriculture in secondary cities in Zambia and Kenya, I didn't mention this earlier, but some of our um, data also came from Kenya where colleagues of mine were doing a data collection parallel to my own data collection efforts in Zambia. So I used some data from Kenya as well. Um, and for that uh, component of the dissertation research, um, we were look, trying to understand what challenges people are facing when it comes to growing their own food. Um, and this kind of stemmed out of uh, the fact that many of the like policy and development actors are pushing urban agriculture as a solution to food insecurity in cities, you know, they're saying, well, you know, people don't have enough food, so they should just grow their own food. But the reality is, is that you know, people don't have the space, the resources, like the productive inputs, like seeds and tools that they may need. Um, they don't have you know easy access to water. Um, They don't have the time. You know, there's these various challenges that people are facing that make it very difficult for them to just go and, you know, grow food in their backyard. And among those who are doing that, um, it's only, um, you know, substituting what they're purchasing from supermarkets or open-air markets. So it's not a solution to food insecurity. Um, So that was the first paper. The second paper was focused on traditional open-air markets, um, and in particular I was looking at how these markets are governed. So markets in, in Zambian cities and in many other cities in Africa um, have what we call market committees, and these are made up of vendors within the market who um, are responsible for the day-to-day operations of the market um, as well as serving as a connecting um, body between vendors customers and um, at the other end the government actors so we did various uh, interviews and focus groups with these market committees to understand you know what does the governance of these markets look like and how do different um, styles of governance um, produce different kind of outcomes in terms of how the market is run and if it's you know, a sustainable market. The third component of my dissertation, which is still in draft form um, and which I hope to publish at some point this year, is actually a review paper that also looks at food markets, but not just traditional open-air markets in Africa, um, but all different types of markets around the world, from farmers markets to wet markets to, you know, Middle Eastern bazaars, various markets that are, are... critical um, for supplying food to urban consumers and trying to understand what role they play in different geographic contexts. Um, again, you know, what challenges are faced in these markets particularly from a governance perspective and what we can learn from, from different uh, markets in, in relation to food security. One thing I failed to mention earlier, which is you know an important part of my dissertation and also um, this uh, fellowship, as well, is that much of this work took place in the broader context of climate and environmental change. So, my own research uh, forms part of a bigger project where um, colleagues of mine um, that I've been working collaboratively with are looking at rural to urban linkages around uh, food security in Africa. Of course, I mentioned the third paper is not just focused on Africa, but in general, you know, my dissertation is. Africa-focused, and we were looking at various drivers such as you know rural to urban migration, or um, you know how does uh, climate change and you know things like drought affect agricultural production, and then what are the knock-on effects of that for food security in cities? Um, and one of the major things is that drought, you know, causes uh, poor agricultural yields, and that means higher food prices in cities which then affects urban consumers.
0: Thank you. Um, I look forward to diving more into some of the details as we further our discussion. Our next guest is Jake Dean, who's a soon to be master's graduate from the Center of Latin American Studies. Jake conducted his research in communities along the shores of Laguna San Ignacio in Baja California Sur in Mexico. Here, members of an ajito, or an area of communal land, have faced multiple attempts by outside corporations to purchase their land to mine salt. A lagoon near this land is also a conservation area for gray whales and a hotspot for ecotourism. So, Jake, you worked with various community partners to better understand the complex landscape of these competing interests of fishermen, local Lejido leaders, conservationists, and then also the whales themselves. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you learned during your field work?
2: Yeah, um, so most of my research here at the U of A and I guess moving forward in my academic career is really kind of putting a critical lens towards the kind of tenets of green capitalism and conservation as a development and this idea that you know we can use kind of these market-based capitalist approaches to conservation issues in order to provide both benefit for local communities while at the same time providing, you know, for conservation outcomes. Um, And so in the lagoon, you know, I've found that ecotourism and conservation as development has generally led to some of the same types of inequities that we kind of see in other spaces of conservation as development and kind of these green capitalist um, endeavors. Specifically, you know, inequality first in the fact that while this large ecotourism, this large kind of conservation industry has been built in the lagoon, very few people actually get access to it, right? So it's a few wealthy landowners in the area. It's American and Canadian companies and American NGOs that are mostly gaining the benefit for conservation actions, whether that's for the Pacific gray whale or the local mangrove populations. Um, but it also leads to inequality in a much different sense in terms of who has local political agency to control their resources and the ways in which those resources are managed, right? So if you don't have access to land, or you don't have access to these conservation spaces, or you don't have access to kind of even enter these political spaces, these rooms where decisions are being made about conservation. And finally, if you don't have access to talk to the NGOs who are funding these projects, well, you know, then a number of people in the communities around Laguna San Ignacio felt like they had very little say. And so they didn't feel like they were gaining access to either the fruits of this development project, and they didn't have a say in how conservation was being enacted within their community. And then finally, I guess I'd say the last kind of form of inequality is Also, an inequity in where conservation dollars and the conservation focus is going, right? As much as I think Pacific gray whales are beautiful animals and should be conserved, um, I don't think that approaching conservation in an area through kind of the lens of one migratory species is a really highly effective way of including kind of the full socio ecological community. There are a number of really critical endemic species within the lagoon, and by kind of placing so much onerous Emphasis on just the Pacific gray whale or just mangrove conservation, we're kind of losing the bigger picture that conservation requires not just kind of the input and consideration of all local community members who are humans, but also all local community members, whether they be animal, plant, or otherwise. Um, And so I think really moving forward with my project, what I want to continue to kind of interrogate and investigate is. The ways in which the conservation movement and kind of this idea that we can do tourism in a sustainable, eco-friendly way to continue to interrogate kind of the fundamental claims of both of those um, ideologies or movements. And so extending my research, hopefully, um, to other locations in Baja and up the Pacific coast, kind of following uh, the Pacific White Whale along the path of their migration. Mm,
0: Interesting. And so what kinds of outputs and things have you are you working on to kind of take some of that research and, and bring it back to to the community?
2: Yeah, so obviously like I finished the master's thesis and I have some journal articles in the works, but like that doesn't necessarily have the most um, tangible impact within the local community. So I've kind of set about I would say, pretty much three main avenues of engagement with kind of my local partners, especially my local partners developed through through the fellowship. The first, um, in kind of a weird way, doesn't necessarily have a ton to do directly with whale conservation, but what it does do is working with a group of local women who are trying to build a public green space within their community. And I think this gets back to the idea that, you know, people should – feel like they have the agency and some ability to control the ways in which kind of the resources and land in their kind of city and community is managed. Um, so I've used um, financial support that I've gotten from from other sources and part of my money from the Klimas Fellowship to um, literally provide financial support to pour the cement, to uh, buy the rebar that is necessary to kind of build up these public planters and public um, public spaces in this park that they're working on second is direct engagement with the conservation groups themselves i think like i said earlier the biggest problem is that these conservation groups come into a community they meet with the people who are the local political leaders and maybe the largest landowners and they pretty much don't meet with anybody else they stay pretty secluded to the beautiful ecotourism camps that you know have tons of amenities and resources um instead of talking to you know the hundreds of others of you know local residents um and so i'm working directly with some of my contacts in these conservation groups to actually try and foster a conversation where other members of the community can at least allow their voices um, and concerns and kind of future hopes to be heard. Um, And then I hope as I kind of continue to work in the space, and it's a little hard in kind of the confines of a two-year master's, but to start building up um, more resources to also kind of support local initiatives, because there are a number of local initiatives, whether um, you know, one person came to me and was talking about their proposal to build a a new trash truck and a new method of trash disposal in the area so that there isn't like a gigantic burn pit um, directly next to this conservation space and this lagoon that you know the community is trying to protect or a group of local um, 20 year olds who have their own plan for how to engage in mangrove reforestation and want to have the like agency in control and so what I'm kind of working towards now and still trying to build up the network is how do we then kind of engage with not just local government actors, but also federal government actors as they, you know, have large amounts of money, they have large amounts of control, especially given that a lot of the area around the Aikido, around these local communities is federally owned, it is federally managed, it is in a biosphere reserve that is controlled at the national level. And so that part of the project is still kind of ongoing. And in my PhD, I hope to become a little bit more engaged and applied there. Um, But, you know, that's part of the process, right, is yeah. uh, developing those skills and developing those connections. So.
0: Yeah. yeah, it seems like you kind of went in with, uh, with some questions, and it took a lot of different avenues. So that's uh, it's really interesting. We'll get more into it as well as we continue. Finally, our third guest is Rachel Zollinger, an artist and Ph.D. candidate in art and visual culture education. Rachel works with a science museum and local community partners in and near Albuquerque, New Mexico, to develop hands-on and experiential art integrated science curriculum for children. So, and as I understand it, a lot of this work really looks at how drawing practices engage children's intellectual and and emotional capacities to understand and interact with the natural world. So, Rachel, tell us a bit more about this uh, connection that you're building between art and the environment.
3: Um, Yeah, so I study children's drawing practices in a science-based environmental learning setting, and like Gigi said, in collaboration with a science museum that I worked for for um, many years. So I'm interested in uh, children's uh, ecological and cultural identities um, in connection with drawing as a way to learn um, and to express themselves. So I look at drawing in particular as a mode of learning because it supports both cognitive and imaginative uh, development. And so, by that very nature, it's not siloed into one discipline um, or another, um, and it's something that humans do quite naturally from a very young age. Um, and most children uh, engage with drawing in often very vivid ways, and so it can be a way to kind of peek at what they are, what kind of information they're taking, and how they're processing it, um, and a way of communication. So, the education program that I'm studying in particular which I should say that I helped develop it, and I had taught it for years before deciding to pursue my PhD and, and then study it in a, in a different way. So the way that this program is designed is that it is to encourage children to use uh, drawing uh, to help them make sense of their world and communicate with others. And I'm particularly interested in these children, um, the research participants who are between ages 5 to about 11 years old, um, because of the world that they are currently living, living in, which is very different from the one that I grew up in, you know, climate change and diminished biodiversity is very real to them, um, and I think that's it's – a, it's a unique thing that uh, previous generations have not had to contend with at such a young age, and so I'm really interested in the ways that they are constructing their identities around that kind of, of, of a reality.
0: That's something that I want to ask all of you, but I'll start with you, Rachel. What's something kind of surprising or unexpected that you've come up against in this in this work so far not against but has come up and surprised you?
3: yeah um well right now i'm I'm really wading through an immense amount of data. I took data over nine months of of these programs, and i I am an artist I, I um, have been drawing for as long as I can. Remember um, drawing as part of my practice and I have taught drawing to students of all ages for many years and looking at the ways that children are actually really truly drawing in these settings um, has kind of really challenged what I thought I knew about the way that people draw and the way that people are these children in particular are taking in information in, in a way that is often construed as being very visual and the way that I have taught children to draw is very visual and realizing that there are so many other aspects that are influencing the ways that they um, make that graphic representation
0: so like what's an example well um,
3: so traditionally with with the way that drawing is taught is, is very visually based like if um, so for example a lot of these things are taking place within a a science discourse which says that you should observe something and you should be objective um, from it and these are practices that we are we are trying to um, cultivate with with children from a very young age Um, and they really resist that in that they want their whole bodies to be part of this they want to touch the things that they are supposed to draw they want to really put everything into it they don't see really a difference between where their bodies stop where their bodies start and stop, and the body that they are um engaging with, um whether that's a leaf or an insect or their you know fellow um classmate <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that's uh it's an interesting way to think like is that something that kind of adults seem to lose over time, or absolutely yeah, yeah. um so like
3: I said, children, children draw from a very young age. It's a rather instinctual human practice. And about six years old, when we start to teach children how to read and write, we really suppress um, the ability to draw. And it goes from something that, that humans quite naturally do um, and are very fluent at to something that people feel that they, are, they don't have the capacity to do that um, and so while children very easily communicate in a pictorial sense, um, the more we encourage them to um, read and write, they, they start to, to lose that or feel less confident with that. And, and with that, I, I should say, with that, I think you lose a little bit of that, um, that bodily engagement hmm. with the world.
0: Um, Julia? Julia? How about you it was something that kind of stood out to you or surprised you in your research yeah.
1: um you know uh, gosh my research, my research is so so different to Rachel's I feel like you can be so creative in yours whereas mine's more you know I don't want to say boring but <laughs> <laughs> um but I mean there have been so many things that surprised have surprised me and I think it's largely because it's you know when I came into the PhD as I mentioned earlier it was a totally new kind of feel for me so there's been so many like amazing things that I've learned, but a couple of things. Um, if I think about my research on the governance of uh, urban food markets in Zambia, you know, often we will think, oh, well, you know, if there's kind of more more government oversight and the government's you know providing all the services that they're supposed to, like the toilets and you know water points where like you know fresh produce can be washed and you know oversees the cleanliness of the markets, these kinds of things that uh, the market would run better. But what we actually saw in some cases is that informal markets where there aren't very many rules um, and not much government oversight, these markets actually sometimes run better. And you know there's various reasons for that, and you know one of them is that the the vendors in the market you know are forced to come together and and figure out how they can best run this market to obviously make their income but also serve their their local customers. And then also what we see is um, private sector actors coming in and taking over, you know, what um, the the services that the government should be providing, such as, you know, installing toilets or um, uh, storage facilities where people can leave their produce or whatever they're selling overnight and not have to lug it all home and then all back in the morning. Um, so in some ways, you know, we could think of these markets as like mini representations of what happens in real life. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, having grown up in South Africa, we see like where there is a lack of services. For example, in South Africa, we, having ele- we have been for many years having an electricity crisis where we, you know, we have load shedding. We're just rolling blackouts. And now we see um, independent power producers coming in and, you know, filling that gap in the market. So in some ways, um, urban food markets are like many representations of, of that. Another interesting thing is uh, my re- with my research on urban agriculture. You know, when I first went in, I was like, yes, this would be such such a good solution. Like, you know, why doesn't everyone just, you know, grow some tomatoes or whatever it might be? And aside from the barriers that I mentioned earlier, such as, you know, people not actually having a backyard to grow things in, or, you know, not having the property rights because they're uh, renting and don't own their place, what we're seeing is that many um, people actually don't want to do that. They have different aspirations to what we as outsiders might, you know, perceive. Mm. So... um, increasingly people, new generations are actually being born in cities and they're not, you know, we. a lot of what the trend in Africa is rural to urban migration, but more and more so people are being born in cities and they don't necessarily have the desire or the skills to grow their own food because they haven't grown up on a farm and moved to a city, you know. So um, those are two interesting things that pop to mind um,
0: yeah, I think, uh, I mean, just in my foray into growing food, it's really difficult. It's so
1: <laughs> difficult, I know. I'm trying at the moment, and I, we had one hot afternoon and all my, like, little tomato plants and stuff shriveled up. i yeah. like,
0: okay, this is hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's very hard. <laughs> How about you, Jake, with something surprising?
2: Yeah, I think kind of it's in conversation with, with both of your answers. Like, on this idea of, you know, there are these really good sounding solutions or like in the abstract um you know a term like conservation or this idea of you know being ecologically sensitive with our tourism like you know I know as like a angsty teenager that was something I was like yes you know we need to like conservation's what we need we need to like save the whales we need to like engage in in these types of practices but I think going back to something you said about this idea that like kind of scientific discourse has kind of built up this one way of looking at something or kind of What maybe some of these terms mean, and I think the surprising thing is, or one of the hardest things too, I think, with my project was getting myself out of kind of this techno scientific definition of what conservation is. And I thought, you know, in my research, there was lots of concerns that local fishermen didn't like conservation. Mm -hmm. Well, they like the idea of conservation. They like this kind of general goal of like having a sustainable ecosystem and like a livable ecosystem for the future. But the question is like, what does conservation mean? What does like ecotourism or sustainability mean? And so, you know, I kind of it became a challenge and kind of surprising of even sitting there trying to, you know, write about this topic and be like, when I say conservation, it's almost now a little bit jumbled in my own head what I'm actually referring to, you know, when I say conservation. And it becomes I think really important for a lot of different terms in the environmental space, especially kind of in these areas where, you know, environment and culture are are kind of colliding in these really complex ways, is to really interrogate what these terms mean and what these kind of like practices that we've all kind of held up on some some moral high ground of being a good thing we should be doing. Yes, you know, I think we all can in the abstract have this goal that we're working towards, but like really clearly and, and specifically interrogating what those terms mean and when put into practice what does that actually look like um and just because like we're doing something in the name of conservation doesn't necessarily make it a good action or or something that is positively impacting uh, a community or you know uh, a, a local ecosystem and i think that was really really surprising just because you know for so many years in my own head i've been like thinking that we need to act sustainably we need to fight against climate change but at the same time well, i think we have to like be a little bit more um I don't know how to frame it, be a little less naive mm-hmm. with some of these terms and be a little bit more kind of like critically thinking about, about to like whether or not that's the conservation that a local community has in mind, or mm-hmm. these are the ecological practice that a local community has in mind. And just because I have a master's degree or I have a degree in biogeosciences doesn't mean I know really any better what like the conservation priorities for a local community of people who have lived there for decades mm-hmm. really means, right? Um, so it's kind of a, a tough thing that you kind of have to negotiate and really think about and still like right now I'm thinking about like what is conservation or what should conservation be? Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of unmooring and undefining these terms. Yeah.
0: Um, Or maybe a broadening of it too. It's like can be multiple things. Well, I think that brings up a really uh, good point that uh, was a similarity across all of your projects is that they have this collaborative nature in that you're trying to do work in, in collaboration with other partners in order to decentralize some of the scientific or, like, the research or, like, university role and really, um, you know, either redistribute some of that kind of, like, knowledge and power and what that means, like, amongst your partners or kind of, you know, build together with your partners some kinds of, like, newer definitions for things. I mean, at least that's, that's my understanding. That's one of my understandings of collaborative research. Um, you might all have different ones. But I guess uh, a question for anyone who wants to jump in. Why was collaborative research important to you? What does it mean to you? How did that kind of come through in some of your work?
1: Yeah, well, if I can go. for me, um, I think collaborative research is really important because it makes sure that your research is actually relevant and meaningful to those stakeholders who need to use that you know, use that knowledge. And in my case, uh, throughout my, my PhD as well as you know, this fellowship, um, I've worked quite closely with a couple of people from the Zambia Agriculture Research Institute, and two of them in particular, you know, have been really key stakeholders that have been involved in my research from the start. And one of them, uh, Alan Chelanga, is you know he's a really amazing guy. He can pretty much do everything, but, um, he's been key in, you know, helping us access local communities, local government actors, um, has really like been there for us, uh, in the field. The other person, uh, is with the Zambia, um, or the, the National Agriculture Information Services, which is essentially, uh, the media branch of Zambia Agriculture Research Institute. So she, um, is quite key in helping us to share our findings and you know package them in ways that are that uh, are relevant for government actors who are actually going to have a hand in in changing policy or in um, you know implementing the kinds of actions that we you know suggest based on what our findings are um, and having had the opportunity to work with these people throughout has just been really amazing um, and you know, I think that it's important to do just because without having that kind of local perspective and that local input, Mm -hmm. um, for us coming, you know, from an American institution and, you know, coming into these local communities, we don't really know, like, what the local context is. So actually collaborating with those local actors and, like, involving them not only in, you know, the latter stages of your research, but having them, you know, help shape, like, what your surveys are, um, what kinds of questions work well, um, having them involved in, like, testing our, our uh, you know, data collection tools has been, like, really, really important. And, you know, through working with them, we've realized that they actually have this amazing capacity, um, and we've actually brought them on, you know, in co-authoring papers, um, in helping us develop policy briefs. So So, yeah, I think, like... Collaborating and engaging with local stakeholders is so important to make uh, your findings, you know, as I said earlier, relevant and meaningful and, and more impactful.
2: Yeah, and I think going off that, like the one thing I agree with entirely is like making sure that the questions you're even asking in the first place are relevant to, to the community you're going to or the community you're working with. I think especially in as someone who comes mostly from like an anthropology background, there is such a of history long history of not only kind of a colonial model of engaging in anthropology but a top-down model of like there is one person they are the expert academic anthropologist they do the study come back and tell everybody what they find and like that's that and I think it's a little bit problematic because even in my own case like I came to the lagoon with like a completely different set of questions than the ones I ended up answering or even investigating you know I thought there was going to be this big conflict where fishermen told me that you know for four months out of the year when the whales were there that they couldn't fish and so that was really cutting into their you know fishing income and then I get there and they're like well we just go like 20 miles down the coast and it's totally fine like we have this other you know fishery we can engage in and all of a sudden it was like well yeah okay I mean I was basing this question off like literature from like the 1990s and you know the fact that like no one's kind of updated the like socio-political socio-ecological situation meant that until I actually worked with the community engaged with the community to figure out like what is kind of the central environmental issue, the central issue with kind of the model of kind of conservation in the current moment, I would have done a thesis that not only would have been not useful for the community, but not useful really in a scholarly context either. Um, And so being able to kind of on the fly a little bit, like have to rethink and reframe and and rework your project also kind of forces you now to think about this, this community or this area you've been thinking about and researching and doing all of this literature review on for months before you got there like in a completely new and different way. And I think adding in those kind of new perspectives is also very helpful to just take your research in a new direction. Yeah, do you have anything you wanna yeah, add?
3: Yeah, yeah. Yes, I think from the perspective of education, I mean, education is a community effort. Sometimes I think there's a misconception that education is something that happens in a formal school setting. But in fact, we spend so very little of our lives in a classroom and most of the learning that we do happens outside of that and that it continues throughout our lives. So that has always been the, the mission of the museum that I worked for, but also why we work with so many community partners. So for the program that I'm studying has mainly worked with agricultural uh, partners, so um, small-scale farmers, as well as those committed to making agricultural sustainable, regenerative, something that can happen for the long-term future, asking them, what kind of things do you want the next generation to know? Um, and so that has ranged from what topics to, to um, teach about to also inspiring the next generation to want to participate in agricultural traditions, but also look to the future for um, more sustainable agriculture. And so with education, so much of this is intertwined in, in throughout our lives. It's the way that we come to um, see the world. And so to do research in education, I think fundamentally necessitates that you engage with communities where that learning takes place. Um, And those can be, you know, a broad variety They can be very place-based, but it can also be across discourses as well. Um, And in doing so, I think it makes uh, education so much more meaningful because it connects to the world that you actually live in, and it's not sort of disembodied. You know, without without some sort of home um, in which that you can take it out into the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think all those points are so true and so necessary. I think this kind of work is is really necessary to address you know all this this breadth of, of different kinds of of issues that you all are working on. I guess just as graduate students um, and trying to do some of this collaborative work, I think you know. In my experience, there's been sometimes institutional barriers that kind of, you know, make it difficult to really collaborate or, like, um, you know, to move money or use funding to support their community members or pay them. or You know, there's just all these kinds of, of little, like, red tape issues that kind of come up from – in being at a university – um, so I'm curious to know what some of your experiences have been around either the challenges or, or maybe even supports that um, you've found by doing this work as a graduate student, and trying to, trying to build these relationships with people as you do this work.
2: I will say it might be a bit different in my case, just because of trying to do fieldwork and like community-based and connected fieldwork in a master's that's two years long, where you mm-hmm. have one summer basically. In fact, I had to, you know, during this semester, continue on to do more field work just because, like, with how quick paced it was, I felt like I hadn't done a sufficient enough. Like, I can't do a project on whale watching if I don't go to the field during the time of whale watching, right? And so, even trying to build those connections in such a short frame of time mm-hmm. um, was really difficult. Um, and so, I think that's one thing I'm excited with, and kind of moving into my PhD in kind of a longer format of actually being able to do not just one small short stint of fieldwork, but kind of like iterative longer lasting field work that allows me to build up some of those connections um and so that's something that like it's not even an institutional problem or a resource problem that's just kind of like the logistics of mm-hmm. what master's work is um but i think it is good training and good like practice as i kind of continue in the same field site continue in the same topic um the kind of give me a brief taste of what that experience might be like and for you know two or three months instead of what will be you know a year year and a half um, in the doctorate. but I think the other thing and something you mentioned in the question that does make it a little bit difficult is when you get money from different university sources or different foundation sources, like there are very strict reporting guidelines on like what you can do with that and you have to like very much match like in a lot of cases the budget that you put forth and like you need receipts for like the things you're buying um and it does become a little bit more difficult then to alter your plans when you're in the field and like my field site doesn't really have cell service and internet and I can't get receipts necessarily for some of the like other things I might want to buy or kind of change the use of some of my resources to meet the needs or wants or kind of interests that community members and I have have, have raised. Um, and so it does become a little difficult in some of those logistic situations to mm-hmm. to engage. But I do think that that's one of the real benefits of this fellowship, right, is that the resources are ours to use for, you know, I use part of it to literally pay my rent during the summer when I couldn't find, you know, a job to, like, support myself. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I use part of that on, like I said, the concrete um, for the public park and used, part of it for transportation and so there's like a lot more flexibility i feel like in this fellowship to use the resources for what we as scholars need because like we need to continue and survive and you know grad school can be financially tough but also the flexibility to then in the field on the fly without having to get like tons of power approval mm-hmm. use those funds in ways that are like very beneficial to our research and very beneficial to the community partners we're working with and i don't know in a lot of cases there isn't that flexibility and freedom right with like Mm -hmm. A grant of multiple thousands dollars right Right.
1: yeah yeah for me I think one of the biggest challenges was just the distance to my field side Mm -hmm. you know like it's it's not a cheap or a short flight to get to Africa um so thank goodness for you know technology and the ability to use zoom and so on to to meet with our partners but you know I'm not sure if we were planning on talking about this later but one of the major challenges I did experience was of course COVID-19 and I'm sure all of us did but I'm very grateful that you know I was able to get three months of field work in in 2019 before the world changed and then you know we were planning on going to the field pretty much every year but of course that wasn't possible with travel restrictions and so on so that was a major challenge um but, you know, we luckily because we had built these connections with people in Zambia after having spent time in that, that time in the field, that critical time in the field in 2019, you know, we had established those relationships and building off of that base, we were then able to do phone call surveys um, and, you know, keep quite a close connection going despite the challenges that COVID brought and our inability to travel because of that. But yeah, related to what you were saying, Jake, around funding, you know, I, I was lucky enough to come into a very well-funded project that where I didn't have to worry about um, the funds that I needed to actually get my, my data for my PhD. But again, with that, you know, I was quite confined to what those project ad- objectives were. And, you know, I was very happy with the, the types of issues that I was researching, but there were some things where I wish I could have had a little bit more freedom. Like, for example, um, my research on urban agriculture, a lot of that data came out of a household survey, um, which is great because, you know, you can get large numbers and you can, you know, run some great statistical tests and so on. But we didn't really get at like, the why behind that. So, like, why are s- so few houses engaged in any type of agric- urban agriculture and I would love to have done a more qualitative study to to complement that, to actually, you know, speak a little bit more in depth with some of these um, these participants and understand, you know, more about, like, what the, the reasons are behind that and, you know, perhaps, like, what what would need to change in order for them to be able to do that. And then also just to have more opportunity to interview policy actors around, you know, what their take is on some of these barriers, and you know, I, it was something that I like—an idea that I put out. It was like maybe we could do some qualitative interviews, and, and you know, partly because of the restrictions of, you know, what my, my PI and, and so forth like saw as you know the most um, valuable kind of data collection method, but also partly because of the challenges of COVID and not being have, being able to go back to the field. Um, you know, I never did, I wasn't ever able to do that, that co- more qualitative study. So, you know, moving forward, if I co- did continue with research, that would be something that i prioritize as a complement to more quantitative types of research.
2: Did you also feel like any limitations to, in regards to, like, IRB and needing, like, this very strict, like, ethical and institutional approval before it does also become hard when someone, for example, was... In my field site, told me like, oh, we should go to this like other community that's a few hours away, and we should talk to this person. And it's like, well, technically, I only have field site approval to like be engaging in this one specific community on these specific issues. So like, as much as I would love to go do this kind of research, you know, I don't actually know if I have like institutional or ethical approval to actually be doing that. And it does make it a little bit hard too. Like outside of funding, outside of whether or not your PI or you know logistically you can even do it, it's like also there is in the university system and I understand why there are these regulations for both funding and for you know IRB and ethical concerns but it does make it a little bit hard to be sometimes as flexible as you want to be with those qualitative methodologies in the field right
1: for sure I think one thing I learned with IRB is that try and be a little bit more broad and then even if you don't do all of what you said you were going to do it's better than like not having approval for something so for us like we ended up uh, running our survey in Zambia in 14 different urban locations. And before we went into the field, we weren't actually sure exactly what those were, were going to be because a lot of it was kind of, you know, take it as it comes and, like, you know, where oh, where could we go next? And, you know, or, for example, we would get to, like, a very small urban place and we're like, oh, we can probably get, like, ten surveys here. Maybe we use our time better and go to a different town. Um, and i mean i can 't remember how we worded it in the i r b but I think we made it a little like broader or like more vague somehow so that we didn't we weren 't tied to certain locations, so maybe that 's something you can consider in the future to just say oh you 're going to you know do various communities in this region or something i don 't know if i r b would you know accept that, but yeah yeah, it
0: can be tricky. <laughs>
3: Um, well, I think I, think I, hearing both of you talk about your experience, I was just thinking how extraordinarily lucky um, I am to have worked with an organization that I not only knew really well and knew um, kind of the, the channels that I could move through, um, but one that's also very flexible and was very accommodating for the things that I suggested maybe we do, um, as well as um, funding, because I didn't have to worry so much about, you know, directly putting money towards something, but there was already channels established, like how to do that in ways that through the success of, of that organization were established as, as, you know, good for the community. But speaking of IRBs, I think, well, I know that a lot of people avoid doing, um, research with children because it, it's a lot of paperwork. Um, there's so many permissions that you have to do and people for good reason are very reluctant to, um, permission for their child to be part of research. And so from the very first round of data that I did, I realized how extraordinary lucky I was to be working with an organization that has such deep trust with the community, and um, that every single parent or guardian consented to allow their child to be in my study, which is kind of unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it meant a lot to me to be, one, a representative of, of that museum and be part of that community, and to have that trust from day one um, and for the community to, to return and, and want to support me in the in the research that I was doing. So and, and that experience, I mean it really solidified my perspective on the importance of of you know really showing up for the community and establishing trust for the long term, which now, um, Jake hearing like your story of like how do you do this in, in two years or even three years, I can't imagine any of the work that I have done could have happened in that short amount of time. like this is almost a decade in the making for me to be able to do that, um, which is really special mm-hmm. as I'm thinking about it.
0: Yeah, I think um, one of the the basic pieces of the, the underlying framework of doing this work is is those relationships and you know like you've come into it in different times so I think you know these relationships for you Jake were pretty new and so you're kind of just at that beginning phase of what could be like a much longer, I mean it sounds like you're going to do your dissertation work around some of these same topics in the same area so you know it could be become this longer term kind of thing yeah Rachel you already you have been building these relationships for a long time and that w- kind of allowed you to to really come in and, and do this particular project in this moment, and Julia, I think coming in and and having those relationships with your colleagues like really kind of helped enable you to like go deeper into into a lot of that work. And so there's you know all different kinds of relationships. There's all different ways to come at it. And um, I think to me that's one of the most interesting pieces of this. And and really the one of the best outcomes is building those relationships and building those connections and. You know, seeing how those can help us work together to really, you know, address some of these uh, societal and environmental challenges. So, as we wrap up here, um, you know, what advice would you give to someone who's either looking to do some, you know, some kind of collaborative research or address some kind of, you know, big environmental or societal challenge?
3: Well. I mean, going off of my experience, I think the very first thing is to, to really be listening to what the community says that they, that they need and that they want, rather than be saying, I want to do this for you, but actually, actually asking what is important to you and how you can use that as a guiding point um, for the, re- the research that you do. Um, and then secondly, I think it's so important to draw on the existing strengths and assets of the community because that that can only grow um, when you're when you're coming from a deficit position, um, it really no one w- feels good about it. Um, <laughs> and so, if you're coming from what do we already have and what we can uh, really grow from here, I think you can get a lot a lot further and be a lot more uh, a lot more meaningful in what you do.
1: Yeah, I agree with that, Rachel. Um, and just to add to that, I think I would say you know um recognizing the the capacity that stakeholders have you know often coming from you know earlier Jake mentioned oh you know i'm doing a masters or like for me you know oh i'm a phd you know but actually like people on the ground have so much more practical knowledge and can you know contribute so much more than what we are you know reading you know in on our de- in our desk studies or whatever so recognizing, you know, and embracing the, the knowledge that they have and also just recognizing that, you know, many of them do have the capacity to, like I mentioned earlier, you know, co-author or at least, you know, mm-hmm. give really great practical insights into the kinds of things that, that we're writing. Um, and I think that is critical for, for doing more engaged research.
2: And I think all of that's great advice. The one thing I would also kind of add is... Um, being, like, flexible to, like, just kind of ride the wave of what that ends up looking like in your field site. Like, I think a year ago, had you told me that I would have to get into, like, an 8-foot boat and go on 10-foot waves and, like, go net fishing, and, like, that would be, like, very terrifying, and I wouldn't necessarily understand, like, exactly what that would be, you know, teaching me or or, or helping me directly learn about the community. But, you know, what was the first thing that everyone, you know, pretty much told me in the community is like, well, you need to go out fishing first, and then, like, you need to exactly, like you need to do it, we need to see you, like, going out and fishing, and then, you know, we'll be more open to talk about it, and, like, once you've kind of gone through that. And obviously, like, as an anthropologist, there was that intention to do participant observation, but just kind of the willingness to, okay, if local community members want you to go see or observe or do this one thing, and then, you know, you can kind of collaborate and, and produce that knowledge, like being flexible and open to kind of whatever whatever that is and whatever, you know, kind of direction or research question or topic they kind of want you to move towards. And that's not to say, like, you know, just not to have any of your own kind of intuition or your own, like, kind of academic rigor that you're bringing to it, but, like, just being not necessarily married 100% to, like, one approach, to one question, to kind of one... I keep bringing this up, but kind of like unmooring yourself and unmooring your approaches a little bit from like just being very traditional and very much what you planned. Like there does need to be kind of a little bit of that freedom and flexibility Mm -hmm. Um, because that's how the knowledge and like kind of the expert intuition of these local institutions or local individuals um, comes through, right? Is like you taking away a little bit of your control away and and, and giving it up to somebody else.
1: Yeah, like keeping an open mind and being open to surprises like we talked about earlier but also just field work in general i think you have got to have that fla- that flexibility and things don't always go according to plan so not being you know necessarily super rigid in your approach but being adaptable you know and
0: yeah yes sage advice thank you all so much uh it was a pleasure to support your work over the last well really year and a half <laughs> and really look forward to seeing what comes next for you all. So thank you.
1: Thanks, Gigi. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys.